Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in Melbourne's CBD. Now, back in 2014, we recorded the Myth or Truth series, where we put some of the big claims of the Christian message to a series of experts. Now, most of these conversations have already been broadcast, but there has been one notable omission. The best attended forum was with Professor John Lennox on the question, Has Science Buried God? Now, unfortunately, the sound recordings for this particular episode were lost, meaning that the conversation has never been broadcast. However, recently, we discovered another recording of the conversation. Now, unfortunately, the sound quality of this particular recording was not good enough for broadcast as the microphone was too far away. However, the content is so good and the speaker so interesting, we thought that we might be able to clean up the files and improve the sound quality as much as possible for our podcast listeners. So, thanks to some terrific editing work, we've salvaged something of the conversation. It's still hard to hear at certain points, and we do apologise for that. Um, There's also an occasional bing-bonging, which was the sound of the lift to the room that we used. But I do hope that you persevere because it's a great conversation. My guest is Professor John Lennox, Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University. He's an internationally renowned speaker on the interface of science, philosophy and religion. He's written a number of books, including God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And he's debated some of the world's leading atheists, including Richard Dawkins and Peter Singer. The big question we discuss is, has science buried God? I started the conversation talking about the basis of John's Christian belief. Is your Christianity simply the result of your upbringing? No, that was the beginning. So I was very fortunate. I come from Northern Ireland, but my very unusual parents, my parents were Christian without being sectarian. And secondly, they allowed me to think, which was perhaps even more unusual. So when I got to Cambridge, I wasn't saddled with all the kind of baggage that many people had at that time. And for me, growing up in a thinking home, my Christianity was very expansive. It was being interested in everything, being interested in the big questions, and being prepared to consider the alternatives. I mean, I clearly remember when I was about 13, my father said, have you ever read the Communist Manifesto? And I said, no. And he said, here it is. You, you better read it. So that kind of background. So I'd done an immense amount of reading even before I got near university. And a lot of it came from the atheistic, the non-Christian direction. So I've been, all my life, I've spent in exposing my faith in God to the alternatives and testing it out in that way in the debate. And the last time I was here, I was debating your famous professor, Peter Singer, in the town hall in Melbourne. So your parents encourage you to think. And now you've obviously you've earned doctorates from Oxford, Cambridge, University of Wales, professor of mathematics. Was there anything there that challenged your belief in God or challenged you to abandon God at all? Well, of course, all study is challenging. And I believe that faith in God can be tested. And my concern is, coming from Ireland, where people said, well, of course, it's Irish genetics and so on. The issue for me was, is the Christian faith true? And I believe it is true. I believe it's evidence-based. And I found all of my study challenging. But I've never found anything that has uh, threatened, even in the slightest way, to destabilize my faith in God. Mm. 
because I discovered that in the Christian faith there are answers to the big questions that takes them seriously. So that's the way it's happened for me. But since I question my faith every day of the week, maybe. Mm. So you say that the Christian faith is true, then how do you test it? Well, at various levels. Philosophers will talk about truth in two principles directions. First of all, does it make sense? And secondly, does it correspond to reality? And the big questions start with creation. Is there a creator or not? And how would we detect that? And uh, therefore, I test in all kinds of ways. And the first one of those really is the very fact we can do science. The universe is rationally intelligible. And if you look back to the history of science, you see in the 16th and 17th centuries, suddenly the rise of what we call modern science. And most historians and philosophers of science will connect that to the Christian faith. I mean, C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly, but he was summarizing Alfred North Whitehead when he said men became scientific because they expected more nature, they expected more nature because they believed in the lawgiver. So in one sense, let me put it this way, I'm not remotely embarrassed or ashamed of being both a scientist and a Christian because it's arguable that Christianity gave me my subject. Of course, we're in a different state today because people like Stephen Hawking say that you've got to choose between science and God and so on. But that's the way it started and it seems to me to be very important from a historical perspective. Well, that's, uh, in some respects, our, our topic for today, sort of the science and, and God and, and so on. And, and I noticed this on Facebook the other day, and it was on the internet, so it's got to be true. Paul Boyer, a biochemist and Nobel Prize laureate, said, My views have changed from a belief that my prayers were heard to clear atheism. Over and over, expanding scientific knowledge has shown religious claims to be false. None of the beliefs in God's has any merit. How would you respond Oh, well, it's the last phrase that is the giveaway. None of the belief in gods. I would want to know what kind of god he's talking about. Because, of course, science has abolished a whole range of gods that need to be abolished. Which, which god today, for example? Well, for instance, the ancient gods of the ancient Near East, like the Greek god of thunder and lightning, a bit of atmospheric physics in Melbourne University will soon cause that god to disappear. Mm -hmm. And what I find very often among atheist scientists, particularly like Stephen Hawking, who's the most prominent of them, is that they've got the idea that Christians, for example, like me, believe in a kind of God of gaps like those ancient Greek gods, that God is simply a placeholder, an X, and a bit more scientific advance will cause that God to disappear. So we, we can't well, I don't believe in a God like that either. I believe that God is the creator and God of the whole show. Mm -hmm. And I stand, in a sense, on the side of Isaac Newton, and when he discovered his law of gravity, he didn't say, okay, I've now got a law of gravity, I don't need God. No, he didn't. He wrote the Principia Mathematica on the basis of that discovery and others, in the hope that what he discovered would persuade a thinking person to believe in God. Because the more he understood in the universe, the more he admired the genius of the God and done it that way. And that's the right way to look at it. And so I would begin to say, First of all, what sort of God is he talking about? But his statement is false. He says, no religious belief. Quote it again to me. That uh, over and over, that. expanding scientific knowledge has shown religious claims to be false. Well, which religious claims? You see, uh, one of the central and fascinating things, because I'm old enough to have lived through it in Cambridge, I can remember, 
when the first evidence for a hot big bang came in. And it was resisted fiercely in the United Kingdom scientific establishment. The irony is it was resisted. Uh, the editor of Nature at the time, John Maddox, said we mustn't go down this way of there being a beginning to space-time because it will give too much leverage to people who believe the Bible. So there was a scientific advance being resisted on the basis that it, it converged too closely with the Bible. Now, as I pointed out at a meeting at CERN some time ago where I was invited, that if people had taken the Bible seriously earlier, which has been claiming there is a beginning, not for hundreds of years, but for millennia, they might have looked for the evidence of it earlier. Mm -hmm. So you can actually base a prediction, if you like, on the basis of the Bible. If you take the worldview seriously, but they didn't because in the Middle Ages and earlier, Aristotle held sway, you see, that time was infinite backwards and this was an eternal universe. So the interesting thing is, against very strong conviction to the contrary, the notion there's a beginning to space-time set in and of course confirmed what the Bible had been saying for centuries. So I think he's just wrong. He's been reading the wrong stuff. He <laughs> used to read some of your books, perhaps. Well, perhaps. <laughs> but I suppose at that point there is a, it demonstrates a point of the testability of the Christian faith, doesn't it? Because it's enormously important. Because if the Christian faith or the Bible says that there is a beginning, if the universe, the scientific consensus demonstrated that the universe was eternal, then yes, the Bible's quite plainly wrong. That, that, that's correct. And, and therefore, we can test it that way. Now, one of the key objections to some integrating science with the Bible is the very first page of the Bible. In fact, some have claimed that reading the Bible destroyed their Christian faith, particularly Genesis 1. Now, you've written a book, Seven Days That Divide the World, uh, the beginning according to Genesis and science. So what do you make of this claim that modern science and Genesis 1 are incompatible? Well, I think the problem is often on the Christian side, fear of having a real look at what Genesis 1 actually says. And I suppose the primary clash, there's certainly no clash at the moment over the fact of creation that there was a beginning of space-time, and that's the biggest thing. People so easily get things out of proportion, and they think when it happened is more important than the fact that it happened. Mm. I happen to think that that is not the case. But again, uh, the impression given to some people is that Genesis is saying that our universe and our Earth are recent uh, creations. And in fact, I must confess something here. I come from the very city in Northern Ireland where Archbishop Usher Archbishop Usher, who said that Adam was born on the 9th of October, 4004 BC, at 9 o'clock in the morning, and apologized to the Vice Chancellor of Cambridge that he couldn't put it more accurately. <laughs> so I've got quite a bit to live down. But you see, when you face it head on, a lot of these difficulties disappear. Can I illustrate with one of them? Certainly. That is the idea that the Earth must be young, but of course, the current estimate of it might change. Is 13.7 billion years old. Okay, well, what does Genesis say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, when was that? Now, if you look at the way in which Genesis 1 is brilliantly structured, it has a sequence of days, hasn't it? Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and God rests on the seventh day. And people looking at it fail to see that the days are a pattern. And God said, 
And then there's the day closing off, and there was evening and morning, day one, and so on. If you follow that pattern and take it seriously, it means the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, does not belong to day one. And in fact, in the Hebrew language, it's written in a different past tense, which the scholars tend to agree on, indicates that the events described in the initial statement come before the sequence of days. How long before? The Bible doesn't say, so I don't either. So the whole issue that has been made such a fuss off by many people just disappears immediately. The Bible says zero about the age of the universe. So I'm very happy with the, the current scientific dating, although as a scientist I know it could change, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, as Logos Live, one of the things we do is actually to look at the scriptures, the Bible, uh, the Logos, and, and have a look at this. I'll read those first verses here, and we'll get we'll have a bit more discussion about that. So, uh, Genesis 1, I'll read some of it now. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now these majestic words with the rest of Genesis 1 were spoken on Christmas Eve 1968 in the Apollo 8 space mission. In fact, the whole of Genesis, you heard them? Yes, I was listening. Right. Well, do you think it was, do you think it was appropriate? Absolutely. This was read out of the space mission? The amazing thing was, it sounded totally there you have the most advanced technology at the time, although it seems a bit primitive now, how they managed to get up there in the spacecraft they have and the computers they have, which had less power than your iPhone. It's <laughs> absolutely stunning. But when I listened to that, and it made a profound impression on me, I thought, how utterly appropriate. Here are people at the very height of scientific training. They're physically fit. They're able in every conceivable field. And they think that the best way to express this is to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens. And, of course, that's been my conviction all of my life, but it was lovely to hear it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So we've looked at that first little verse, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then, if you read through the rest of Genesis 1, it appears that there are some other chronological problems, like you know, light is separated from darkness before the sun was, was kind of made, etc. How do, we, how do we understand, or what, what, you laugh there. What, what, what? I laugh because, you see, the thing is clearly difficult and was seen to be difficult in the first and second century. It's not just in the last few. And it was origin is that difficulty. So look here, what is going on? Because there, you've got a sequence of days, and it seems that the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. So what can you mean by day? And I, that is not a recent idea. So you have to ask yourself a number of questions, of course. You have to say, okay, if the text is saying that the sun was created on day four, then you lose the normal concept of day for the previous days. You can't have it both ways. Or, since we have no other indicator that the sun was made in the middle of the sequence, and since the text says at the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which includes the sun, you might want to go an easier way, and that is to realize that within the multivalency of some of the Hebrew words used here, 
This is written from the perspective of someone on the face of the earth, the spirit hovering on the waters. Now, if it is true that the current view is that our earth is very hot inside, as you know, it used to be very hot outside. So, as things cooled down, it would have been completely surrounded by water vapor, we call them clouds. And you would have been aware of the alternation between light and day, but you wouldn't have seen what caused it. You wouldn't have seen the light in the sky, that is the sun. And I think the much easier view to take, and the language allows it, is that it wasn't that the sun was made in the fourth day, but it appeared. It was there, it was put for signs and seasons, as it says. Before that, we couldn't see it. So that's a much simpler way of looking at it. There's no point in creating conflict and then saying that proves the Bible wrong, when there's a perfectly reasonable understanding of it. The other thing you said, the chronology, well, now you see, it's very interesting. You read that out to me, and you said there was evening and morning the first day, didn't you? But it doesn't say the first day. It says Yom Ahat in Hebrew, which means day one. But one thing it doesn't mean is the first day. Because Hebrew has a definite article, Ha, Ayom, the day. And the interesting thing about the sequence is that the definite article, Ha, appears on day six and seven. Now, if you were thinking that those days were simply the days of one earth week, they'd either all have the definite article or they all would not have it. Two of them have it. What does that tell me? That this is a bit more sophisticated than you think. Day one. Day two. Now you see, in our assumptions, we can read things in at a terrific rate. And we tend to say, if these are days, they must be days of one earth week. Well, why do we assume that? It just says day one, God spoke. Day two, he spoke. When was day two? Presumably after day one. How long? The text doesn't tell you. These are days of God's creating. They are very special indeed. You see, so now logic tells you that there are far more possibilities than some people admit. And I go into this in my little book. And as you point out, you see, that was when you didn't point it out, but it is the case, that uh, the days, of course, could overlap. God says something, and then it works itself out. And then there's another input from outside the system. What that text is telling you is, of course, in direct contradiction to the dominant worldview that many scientists appropriate. That is, that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect. There's no outside, there's no God, there's nobody to feed information in. I happen to believe that's false for many reasons. But that's what's happening here. That it's claiming the exact opposite of an unguided natural process and saying God step by step builds up, you see, and he speaks. So he could speak then, it starts to work itself out, he then speaks again, and that starts to work itself out, but the first one's still working itself out. So we mustn't expect a detailed chronology. And the interesting bit of backlight thrown on that was that in my college at Oxford, I, I was once contacted by a very well-known a uh, biologist who works, I think, half-time now in Australia. His name is Professor Andrew Parker, and he's a genius. And he discovered Genesis 1. He's not a theist, not an atheist either. He's just interested. And we had long discussions about this page, this first page of the Bible. 
And he wrote a book about it called The Genesis Enigma, and it's fascinating. I have nothing to do with the book, although I mentioned it. And he says if there are ever a page of literature that would convince me that there is a God who can inspire literature, it would be this page. Because how did they get it in the right order? Now, if you want to follow somebody that doesn't come from a Christian perspective, doesn't come from a theistic perspective, but says there's something utterly special about this. He's an expert in bioluminescence. And the statement, let there be light, so riveted him. He was giving a seminar. And one of the journalists present said, Professor Parker, you sound like Genesis. And he said, Genesis what? I probably thought it was a popcorn. <laughs> Genesis in the Bible. He said, well, what do you mean? I don't want more Genesis in the Bible. So he went out and bought a Bible. And when he read the first page, he became absolutely fascinated. And he reports on this in the Genesis Enigma. Fantastic. So moving through the rest of Genesis 1, uh, we've gone through the creation. But then at the end, it, we get to the creation of humans yes, we on the last day. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Are humans best, left, left, best kept for laughs or an afterthought? Oh, absolutely. You see, you've got a sequence. I mean, let's just step back from it. When you see a sequence of steps, you always ask one simple question. Where are they going? This is teleology. This is the biblical equivalent of fine-tuning. The universe, physics and cosmology have discovered is very special. You have to have the fundamental constants of nature absolutely precisely tuned in order to have carbon-based life. This is the biblical version of it. God step by step builds up a home fit for creatures that bear his image. And the staggering thing about Genesis is not the length of the days, it's the fact that whatever you think about the days, God didn't do everything at once. There is a sequence with a start and a finish. It's very interesting because at that point in the ancient world, the, the God, Christianity got ridiculed because God didn't create everything at once. They sort of say, well, your God obviously isn't powerful enough. Well, yes, but that's absurd. I mean, we are made in this image, we are creative, and we usually don't create our stuff all at once. It is deliberate because you need preparation. And human beings, therefore, are the pinnacle of God's creation. And made in his image, which is an enormously important concept. We look at the universe in its glory. It reflects God's glory. It is not said to be made in his image. Human beings are. And that gives them infinite dignity. For a start, uh, as creatures of God, and that value system is enormously important because, of course, it's that that they challenge. Peter Singer challenges. He says well, we're guilty of speciesism, singling out human beings, and that's our problem. I think his problem is the exact opposite. If we listened to God's instructions for human beings, we wouldn't be exploiting the rest of God's world, as Peter Singer rightly, in many cases, accuses people of doing. But he's got the he's got the diagnosis completely. <coughs> we have had a couple of questions come through on the, the text messages here, so I'll just try to read a couple of them out here. There's, there's too many that we're not going to get through them all, and some of them have already been answered, I think, in some of the, in our discussion. Uh, there's T. Howard de Chardin that put the proposition that man is not a human being having a spiritual experience, but a spiritual being having a human experience. Which should people believe, particularly in light of this image of God stuff? Well, I'm an Irishman. I don't put it both ways. I'm not sure that the distinction was making any very important point there. I've read Freddy under the shutdown, and his ideas of omega point and so on and so forth. We are human beings, and we do have a spiritual experience. 
But we have been, we're part animal, part spirit. So it, it's like saying which wing of an eagle is most important for it to fly with. So I, I don't think there's any power inside that distinction. Uh, as long as we believe it either way around, we get to the same place again, I think. I've got another question now from one of our favourite atheists, Mr. Oz Atheist, who's a Twitter fan of ours, and we've had some conversations before. And he says that, sort of a more general question, I'll read it out. He says, given that everything has either a verifiable natural explanation or no explanation yet, how does, uh, how do we fit God into a scientific explanation of the world? Uh, that's a very important question. If I might, with great respect, say to Mr. Oz, <laughs> that the nature of explanation is a crucial issue here. You see, it's like saying you have a motor car. Now, how would you explain a motor car? Well, there's a scientific explanation. Automobile engineering and the law of internal combustion, let's make it simple. There's also another explanation, that's Henry Ford. How do you fit Henry Ford into the scientific explanation? You don't. But without Henry Ford, you wouldn't have the scientific explanation. A classic example of this is the heat goes off. And I've had a lot of interactions, some interactions with Lawrence Krauss. Uh, and he wrote a piece, you know, the heat boson is arguably more important than God, which provoked me, of course. <laughs> and I said, arguably more important than God for what? If you're talking about elementary particle physics, of course, the heat boson is arguably more important than God. But if you're talking about why is there a universe in the first place, then God is arguably more important than the heat boson. And I think the answer to the question, and it's so important to see it, but we find massive confusion here, that explanation normally comes at several distinct levels. Let's give the simplest example of all. Why is the kettle boiling? Well, it's boiling because there's energy, heat energy from a Bunsen flame that's alight and it's being conducted through the brass bottom of the kettle and it's getting into the molecules of the water and agitating them so that they're starting to go faster and faster and faster and they're breaking into steam. That's why it's boiling. No, it isn't. It's boiling because I want a cup of tea. <laughs> and people laugh at that and they say, but these explanations don't conflict. They don't contradict. They it's exactly the same with the universe. You see, God is not in competition. That question assumes that God of the gaps definition of God, that he's sort of an X holding the thing in place until we get a scientific explanation. But that's nonsense. As Newton saw, and it's nonsense when it comes to automobile engineering and Ford cars. No amount of scientific study of a Ford car will you find Henry Ford. And yet you need him to give a full explanation of the car. The other thing I want to say is scientific explanation is not what many people think it is. And this is quite a serious point. You see, at school, we all learned the law of gravity, didn't we? But did you think that the law of gravity told you what gravity was? I hope you didn't, because Newton doesn't think it does. Well, nobody knows what gravity is. The law of gravity simply is brilliant mathematical insight that enables you to make calculations that will land a person on the moon without even Einstein's corrections. But it doesn't tell you what gravity is. And Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher, said the greatest deception of modernism is that the laws of nature are explanations of the phenomena of nature. And they're not. They're just descriptions that enable us 
to make brilliant predictions. So this idea that science is the only way to treat that it's the explicator at all levels is demonstrably false from both of those perspectives. So, well, Professor Lennox, we do have to start wrapping up. Um, today we've thought about the relationship between science and the Bible. So in your view, myth or truth, has science buried God? Absolutely not. Science points towards God. It's not neutral. And the irony is, you see, here I am a scientist, and if there's no God, why would I trust my mind to do science? Because my atheist friends, when I ask them, I say, you do science with your mind, yes? Aha, what is the mind? It is the brain. Because they're materials. What's the brain? It's the end product of a mind or some kind of process. And I say to them, can you trust it? <laughs> if you knew your computer was the end product of a mind or some kind of process, you wouldn't use it for a minute. So you see, my problem with atheism is not that it shoots itself in the foot, it's that it shoots itself in the brain. <laughs> So, given this, given that uh, science hasn't buried God, how should we respond? If you're listening to this now and you think, okay, well, I've realised that science doesn't destroy God, what should, what should we do next? Well, this could be the beginning of a journey, to realise that the God claim is not so infantile and silly as some people have made it out to be. It can clear a bit of the fog to begin to consider other claims, bigger claims. If there is a word structure to the universe, in the beginning was the word, then we might be more open to consider the claim that the word has become human. Mm. And now we're getting moving towards Christianity and its central claim. And the word dwell here, what is it? The world, the word, word became flesh. flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And of course, that's central to me, because this is God coming into our world, taking the initiative, and doing something to deal with the problem we haven't discussed today. That is the problem of guilt and the problem of human rebellion against God, and the fact that we mess things up, and break things, and break people, and break everything else. And is there any kind of ethical side to this? And of course that's even more important. But clearing up ideas about creation can dispel the fog that begins to say, well perhaps this is worth investigating further. And I hope some of you will find the days. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to have John with us today and to have you with us as well. Let me leave you with the logos for the day. Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live.